Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to this installment of Context Clues, where we share excerpts from previous episodes to give you some important background information for our new topic at hand. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. For anyone uninitiated, we have this thing called the Urban Legends Hotline, where listeners like you submit tales that they heard growing up. We recently received a message about a gang initiation story you might remember if you grew up in the 90s, one you might have even heard far more recently because it has, in fact, stuck around, as these kind of lurid crime tales tend to do. This urban legend tells of prospective gang members performing initiation rites, usually to enter the Bloods or the Crips. They drive around at night with their headlights off, waiting for someone to flash their own as a friendly reminder in the name of public safety. At that point, the gang member flips the car around, follows, and then kills the driver, thus completing the gang's evil mission. For this series, we're going to look at the wide and strange variety of gang initiation scares that have popped up through the 20th and 21st centuries. Up until this point, our Urban Legends hotline episodes have been a little more lighthearted. Ghostly children who push cars uphill, cannibal pig people, Marilyn Manson removing his ribs for personal enjoyment. But this one will be a little more serious, still outrageous, of course, but a tale that, in conjunction with moral panics around juvenile deviance and drugs that we will revisit today, has led to tangible and devastating effects on our criminal justice system. This is the first time I felt that it was necessary to make a Context Clues episode for an Urban Legends hotline topic, as this imagery of heartless, organized gangs targeting innocent strangers as part of their sinister game is deep and complicated and intricately intertwined with the other moral panics that we'll look at today. I think these connections are vital to a more complete understanding of how the media, the police, and politicians can use urban legends to alter public perception, but also to drastically change the American criminal justice system, and thus, so many of the lives that it touches. We'll jump into this episode of Context Clues right after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with 
Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never frozen, ready to eat gourmet meals that are chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. For our first context clue, we're going to hear a section from our episode called Urban Legends, one of my favorites that we've ever done, a more meta look at the concept of urban legends and the history of those folklorists who've collected original tellings and given us a deeper analysis of our own modern American folklore. This upcoming excerpt gives a brief look into this lights-out gang initiation, but also goes into a couple more racialized urban legends that painted people of color as the folk devils of these totally fabricated stories. Since these stories were especially potent during the 80s and 90s, many of them were spread through fax machines, and this section from our Urban Legends episode mentions fax lore, the process of spreading urban legends through fax machines, an earlier version of the chain emails, text messages, and social media posts that have been able to spread these tales much farther and much faster. So check out this excerpt from our episode called Urban Legends. Before the internet and social media, urban legends were often spread through faxes or photocopies of flyers. Fax lore, photocopy lore, or Xerox lore, as it was first coined in the late 70s by Michael J. Preston, many of the faxes were like the emails your older family members might send. Jokes, anecdotes, poems, cartoons, or chain letters that threaten you with death or some other terrible luck if you don't pass it on to ten of your friends. But just as often, these faxes, and eventually the emails that followed, were urban legends passed off as legitimate threats to the community. And the ones that spread the fastest and farthest can certainly tell us quite a bit about the mindset of America at the time. As a runoff of Reagan's War on Drugs, Clinton's continuation of the War on Crime put a spotlight on gangs as they became a new source of American panic. And though the plethora of urban legends that surrounded gangs didn't explicitly state the perpetrator's race, we know what people were imagining when they heard it. 
And I know what I was imagining, what culture had told me to imagine, even at 10 years old. If you drive past a car with no headlights on, don't alert the driver with a courtesy flash, because it could be a new gang member playing a deadly initiation game, one that requires him to turn around and chase the Good Samaritan, to kill him, therefore completing their initiation. The flashing headlights gang initiation story has been around since at least the early 90s, and it felt very legitimate to parents, teachers, the local news, and kids too, and I heard it all the time, year after year. The only kernel of truth within this legend is likely related to a 1992 shooting that took place in Stockton, California. A passenger riding in a local school secretary's car signaled to a group of teenagers that their headlights were not on. Police would state that the teenagers thought the man was gesturing some kind of sign of disrespect and shot at the car. The shooters were not in a gang, and the shooting had nothing to do with any initiation ritual— It was just a senseless, heat-of-the-moment tragedy, and two teenagers were convicted of murder. As he added this new contemporary myth to his growing collection, Mr. Urban Legend Jan Brunvund understood that these stories did not, and could not, stand outside the confines of American culture and politics. In fact, they could sometimes express the worst parts of our own prejudice, and he shared those findings in his book, The Choking Doberman, published in 1984. Like most legends, The Choking Doberman exists in many different variations, but here's the most common telling. So this man has to leave his wife alone while he goes on a business trip, and he's nervous because there's been this rash of break-ins all over the area. So he gets a guard dog for her, a Doberman, to protect her from this maniac who's on the loose. And then the next night, she's coming home after doing some errands, and she opens the door to see the dog choking, like really choking on something. So she puts the dog in the car and drives to the vet right away. But when she gets home, there's an urgent message on her machine from the vet saying to get out of the house and that the police were on the way. It turned out that when they were able to get out what the dog was choking on, they found two bloody fingers totally bitten off in his throat. When the cops got there a couple minutes later, they found a man in the back room huddled and holding his hand and bleeding. And yes, it was that dangerous intruder that the husband had been worried about. This is a basic urban legend in pretty much every way, and Jan tracked the story back to 1981 when it was first printed in a newspaper column and also told on the radio. He found that although the polished versions in the media removed any mention of this next part, the majority of all the oral tellings or the letters he received described the fingers found in the dog's throat as black, explicitly. In another variation, recorded by folklore students in New Mexico in 1964, a series of local break-ins prompts a grown son to get his widowed mother a Doberman named Wagger as protection, one that he's been training to attack an intruder when you say, take him, Wagger. 
The very next night, when the woman was sitting in the living room, she heard the sound of a window opening, and two black fingers reached in as the man pulled himself into the room. The mother yelled, Take him, Wagger! And the dog attacked him as trained, ripping at the man's throat as he called out, Wagger! Wagger! This surprised her, but it was too late, and after he was dead, she discovered that it was actually her son who had blackened his hands and face to disguise himself in an attempt to steal valuables from his mother or to test the guard dog's training, thinking that in either case, he'd be able to call off the dog that he had trained while also making sure his description didn't match him at all. There's another type of urban legend that many of us have probably heard, one that tells of different Asian cultures using dog meat in their American restaurants, stories that flare up in areas where there are upticks in immigration from specific countries. One study out of Stockton, California, found that the rumor spread most prolifically in 1980, the same year that the area saw a notable influx of Vietnamese, Laotian, and Cambodian refugees. The rumor said that dog and cat parts were being found in the garbage, Vietnamese people were trying to buy pets from Americans right off the street, some reported seeing cattails hanging out of the tops of pots in restaurant kitchens. That year, a bumper sticker was seen on a car riding around town that said, Save a dog, eat a refugee. These rumors have been debunked by both the sanitation department as well as local authorities many times in many different places. In a similar manner, we can look to the AIDS myths that we covered in our Gay Agenda episode. Rumors of gay men infecting innocent people with HIV by leaving bloody needles in movie theater seats, of bisexuals intentionally spreading the disease to straight people as revenge for some unknowable crime, and even, well, I'll let televangelist Pat Robertson take this one. You know what they do in uh, San Francisco, some of the gay community, they they want to get people, so if they've got the stuff... They'll have a ring, you shake hands, and the ring's got a little thing where you cut your finger. Really? Yeah, really. I mean, it's that kind of vicious stuff, which would be the equivalent of murder. Yeah. Thanks, Pat. It's always a pleasure. Something very important that we don't talk about in our upcoming gang initiation series is the subject of drugs, something intrinsically connected to the gang panics that we will be covering in detail. The introduction of crack cocaine into urban centers had a profound effect not only on the communities where the drugs were popular, but also on the way those communities were over-policed and handed harsh and unprecedented prison sentences. The now-debunked hysteria over crack babies, usually presented in the media as black, had a lasting and profound impact on the way that Americans viewed the future of black children who would, according to some politicians, some media outlets, and even some academics, turn into almost mythically monstrous beings that put the good children and America itself at risk. 
So take a listen to this excerpt from our very first season, all the way back in 2018, part of our episode called Drugs. When Ronald Reagan and George Bush Sr. won the 1980 presidential race, they did so with the campaign slogan, Let's Make America Great Again. And Reagan's new right policies were all framed around the idea that an individual status was the result of individual moral choices. And things like poverty and unemployment, urban decay, educational inequality and crime were seen as issues of deviant, weak individuals who had forgone their chance at the American dream. He rapidly defunded programs that supported the poor and famously used rhetoric that presented poor people as criminals. Congress passed something called the Military Cooperation with Civilian Law Enforcement Act, and the lines between the police and the military began to blur. SWAT teams were created. Military equipment was used at the local, county, state, and federal levels. Not only that, but in the Latin American wars, the Reagan administration funded the Contras in Nicaragua, groups that were largely responsible for the large influx of cocaine coming into the U.S. Congress soon doubled down on the existing war on drugs, passing the now infamous Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which set penalties a hundred times harsher for crack than for powder cocaine. Those convicted of a drug felony for crack also lost access to voting rights, housing rights, and employment possibilities, which then contributed to rising crime rates. Reagan's harsh anti-drug policies not only led to exploding prison populations, but they also blocked expansion of syringe exchange programs and other harm reduction policies that could have prevented thousands from contracting HIV and dying during his time in office. At the same time, Ronald's wife Nancy Reagan started her U.S. tour, sitting in classrooms with children ages K through 12, teaching them famously to just say no. TV shows like Different Strokes and Punky Brewster made very special episodes using the Just Say No campaign. Nancy Reagan appeared in that episode of Different Strokes as well as an episode of Dynasty. She participated in a 1985 rock music video called Stop the Madness alongside the most random surprise pop-up guests like LaToya Jackson, Whitney Houston, David Hasselhoff, Kim Fields, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Funding was given to a new program called Drug Abuse Resistance Education, founded by well-known Law & Order LAPD Police Chief Daryl Gates. Gates stated that his intention was to establish a better relationship between young people and law enforcement, while educating them about things like self-esteem and respect, but most explicitly, teaching abstinence from drugs. It's likely that a majority of those listening now had contact with at least one D.A.R.E. officer at some point or saw ads starring Darren the Lion and wore classic D.A.R.E. t-shirts or gold foil badges proudly declaring our status as young drug officers. 
famous cartoon characters from competing production companies and actors of all different stripes joined the campaign, and D.A.R.E. became one of the most famous government programs ever implemented. It's... it's me! This is my future? It is if you don't get off those drugs! You use, you lose! Listen to us! We care about you, Mikey! What's up, Doc, is your life, if you don't cut it out. We've all heard the term crack baby, which refers to a child born to a mother addicted to crack cocaine. Children that were not only seen as sickly and pathetic, but also as a potential drain on national resources and a violent threat to other children. A 1989 column that was widely referenced after its publication said that crack created, quote, a bio-underclass, a generation of physically damaged cocaine babies whose biological inferiority is stamped at birth, destroying the unique brain functions that distinguish human beings from animals. Even years later, news networks and talk shows ran specials as these children aged into kindergarten about what these potentially monstrous, animal-like, and violent five-year-olds were going to do to the school system, their peers and teachers, and the nation at large. The experts warned that children like Ed would be coming. They told the schools to prepare for the worst. There is not a child he has not attacked. He has not drawn blood. The eye, the face, everybody has come with just bloody. Today, there are thousands of school-aged children just like Ed, taking their seats in classrooms across America. Science has further shown that crack only has a minor effect on pregnancy, far, far less than alcohol or tobacco. Hasty research in the 1980s didn't account for the other factors that often accompany hard drug usage that likely led to infant health issues, like poverty, lack of access to health services and mental illness, issues that were all made worse by policies of the 1980s, issues that were blamed on crack cocaine. More than 80% of the people arrested during this time for crack were black, despite using both cocaine and crack at similar or even lesser rates than white people. These same policies certainly continued and elaborated under George Bush Sr., but in case you think this is a strictly Republican issue, it was under Bill Clinton that these laws were expanded even further with Three Strikes You're Out, which handed out life sentences for petty crimes, leading to the most people imprisoned in U.S. history. In 1996, Congress also took away lifetime access to food stamps and welfare to those convicted of drug felonies, often impoverished women with children. The number of people behind bars for nonviolent drug offenses increased from 50,000 in 1980 to over 400,000 in 1997. And to this day, the United States still incarcerate people at the highest rate in the world. Daryl Gates, the founder of D.A.R.E., who I mentioned earlier, was forced to resign his post following the L.A. riots that broke out in 1991, sparked by the acquittal of the white police officers involved in the videotaped beating of Rodney King, a black man who had led police on a high-speed chase and was accused of having the superhuman strength of PCP, which was said to justify the extreme force the officers used. PCP was yet another fearful drug of the Nixon administration that apparently led to jumping off buildings, tearing out your own eyes, and murdering in animalistic cold blood, all charges that were vastly exaggerated or made up altogether. 
The drug was later found not to be in Rodney King's system, but the narrative of the drug-addled monster had already been told and was easily accepted on the tail end of the crack panic, as students everywhere were submerged in the fearful stories of the anti-drug ad campaigns and school programs. Studies around Gates's D.A.R.E. program would go on to show similar results to abstinence-only sex ed. D.A.R.E. didn't keep kids from doing drugs. In fact, some studies have shown that kids who go through D.A.R.E. are actually more likely to do them. Similar problems arise to abstinence-only sex ed. When teenagers do inevitably experiment, they don't have the proper education to prevent any associated harms. Also, it turns out that those foil badges were more real than we thought. Kids have been encouraged since 1983 to inform police about family members they know who might be doing drugs, which has actually led to a number of arrests. More after this. And now, back to the show. Alongside these 80s and 90s drug-related moral panics that cast crack babies as a serious danger was the story of the coming super predators told by those in some of the highest levels of government. These sociopathic youths were considered amoral and dangerous, and there was a fear that once they became full-grown adults, there would be a wave of violent crime unlike anything that America had ever seen. And thus, new legal precautions had to be taken that would change the entire landscape of the criminal justice system. There are many, many parallels between this type of super predator rhetoric and the gang initiation urban legends that we will hear about in our series, especially when it comes to tales being told in order to justify harsh new forms of law and order policing and policy. Two other stories we're about to hear tell of packs of black youths wilding out and playing what was called the knockout game, harming innocent strangers, often innocent white strangers, assaulting or killing them as a form of sadistic fun. These are similar to the tales told about gang initiations that target innocent white people in all kinds of lurid and sensationalized ways. The initiates willing to do whatever it takes, no matter how evil, to land a coveted place in the local chapter of their nationally organized gang. Criminal enterprises that it seemed were always just about to slip into the quiet suburbs outside the city to find their newest victims. Now, here's an excerpt from our season two episode called Dangerous Teens. We just got a call of a disorderly group about 30 to 40 mil inside Central Park tackling disorderly and harassing on April 19, 1989, exactly 10 years before the Columbine Massacre, a 28-year-old jogger named Trisha Maley was brutally assaulted and raped in New York's Central Park. The assault was so sudden and violent that Trisha could not remember her attacker or attackers. Soon, the police and the news began reporting that a group of 30 black and Latino boys between the ages of 14 and 16 were participating in something called wilding, with the New York Post calling them, quote, 
packs of bloodthirsty teens from the tenements, bursting with boredom and rage, roaming the streets, getting kicks from an evening of ultraviolence. They were also called savage. They were called the wolf pack. They were called animals and feral. There were indeed teenagers committing crimes in the park that night, including throwing rocks at cars and even beating up a homeless man. But as DNA would later confirm, they did not sexually assault Trisha that night. At that time, New York businessman Donald Trump claimed that his city was being, quote, ruled by the law of the streets as roving bands of wild criminals roam our neighborhoods, dispensing their own vicious brand of twisted hatred on whomever they encounter. Trump took out a full-page ad in four New York City newspapers with the headline in all caps saying, Bring back the death penalty. Bring back our police. The boys confessed to the murder after hours of interrogation without a parent or lawyer present for somewhere between 14 and 30 hours. They later told the media that they were bullied into confessing, but nonetheless, they were convicted and sentenced to 5 to 15 years, either in a juvenile detention center or in prison, depending on their age, despite the fact that the DNA found at the scene matched none of those convicted. It wasn't until 2001 that the Central Park Five would finally be exonerated when a serial rapist came forward in prison to confess to the crime. His DNA matched. Tom Brokaw described the pastime of wilding as, quote, rampaging in wolf packs and attacking people just for the fun of it. New York Post columnist Pete Hamill stated, quote, they were coming downtown from a world of crack, welfare, guns, knives, indifference, and ignorance, and driven by a collective fury, brimming with the rippling energies of youth. They only had one goal, to smash, hurt, rob, stomp, rape. Unsurprisingly, wilding was not a trend, as the media police and politicians claimed. That night in Central Park was a single story that was then used to characterize black youth as a faceless, violent mob. Columnist Pat Buchanan wrote, quote, If the eldest of that wolf pack were tried, convicted, and hanged in Central Park by June 1st, and the 13- and 14-year-olds were stripped, horsewhipped, and sent to prison, that park might soon be safe again for women. This statement is so steeped in antebellum racism as to be almost cartoonish in its offense. Despite the eventual exonerations of Antron McRae, Kevin Richardson, Youssef Salam, Raymond Santana, and Corey Wise, the damage had already been done. The narrative of black and brown teen riots hunting white women and anyone else in their terrible path continued to brim in the news. After the story had sunk into America's consciousness, the early 90s brought reports about something called the knockout game. The urban legend of Wilding had morphed into a new story, a black game of punching people in the back of the head for fun, especially old white women, and then running away. The concept was popularized by a man named Paul Lane, who was attacked in what was later proven to be a robbery, not, as he claimed, a racist attack on an innocent white man. Lane wrote of the incident, quote, I'm a liberal Obama supporter, but that didn't stop the violence on me. I have serious concussion issues and my trust for young African-American men in particular is now less than zero. He continued, to say the black assaults on non-blacks isn't racist is a blatant lie. Black predators are racist to the bone. Most all live the part in prison. 
I assume that Mr. Lane would not have made these sweeping statements about young white men. The knockout game was everywhere. The Today Show, for instance, reported in 2013 that, quote, teenagers are knocking people out for the fun of it, targeting women and children with cases piling up. But none of the incidents cited by the news were actually part of a game. They were often robberies or personal attacks, run-of-the-mill crimes taken out of context, with videos clipped to support the desired frightening narrative. Much of the apparent footage was stock videos of crimes that appeared to be random violence but weren't. A sociologist named Mike King searched extensively to find one legitimate case of the game, but was unable to find a single instance. And yet, these same stories have lasted up to the present decade. We talked about the now-debunked concept of crack babies in our Season 1 episode called Drugs, black children born to people who used crack cocaine in the 1980s and the fears they would grow into wildly violent adolescents. In the 1990s, these imaginary crack babies were slowly growing toward their teenage years, and the term super predator rose to common use when First Lady Hillary Clinton spoke at a rally in 1996 to the very white state of New Hampshire. We need to take these people on. They are often connected to big drug cartels. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heel. And the president has asked the FBI to launch a very concerted effort against gangs everywhere. In case it's not clear, Clinton means heal, the way you would command a dog to subservience, not heal, as in to make healthy again. This term, super predator, was created when conservative political scientist John DeLillo cobbled together a theory of black teenage violence to come, predicting that by 2010 there would be a huge increase in super predators, 270,000 of them in fact. He called them, quote, radically impulsive, brutally remorseless, elementary school youngsters who pack guns instead of lunches and, quote, have absolutely no respect for human life. To DeLillo, there was no cure for this monstrous personality, except, of course, excluding them from schools and then incarcerating them for as long as possible. That's what he said. That was his plan. At the same time, the Clinton administration signed off on the three strikes law that would contribute to mass incarceration at the fastest rate the nation had ever seen. And states all over passed laws to try teenagers as young as 13 or 14 as adults, even though youth crime was at historically low levels. His Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act also drastically increased federal funding for school police, known as school resource officers or SROs. In addition, the Zero Tolerance Policy, which first started as the Gun-Free Schools Act, would soon apply extremely harsh penalties for offenses like the possession of drugs, alcohol, or tobacco, fighting, dress code violations, truancy, tardiness, and disrupting class. Very broad infractions that could be interpreted at the will of teachers and SROs. And that is going to do it for this installment of Context Clues. As always, we encourage you to check out any of the episodes you heard today in their entirety. Again, they're called Urban Legends, Drugs, and Dangerous Teens. 
And of course, make sure you come back next week for part one of our series called Gang Initiations. In the meantime, think about going to AmericanHysteria.com and leaving us a message on our Urban Legends hotline about a tale that you remember from growing up. And you may be the inspiration for our next obsessive deep dive. This was American Hysteria. If you want to get more of our show, you can head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria or subscribe on Apple Plus. You'll get ad-free episodes as well as bonus content, including Hysteria Home Companion, a talk show that I do with our producer Miranda, where we tell stories that were cut from the episodes or stories that we think that you would like. So just go to patreon.com slash American Hysteria or subscribe on Apple Plus. This episode has production and sound design by Riley Swedelius Smith and was edited and produced by Miranda Zickler. And I'm your host, Chelsea Weber Smith. Thanks as always for listening, and I hope you have a great week.